Broadcasting from the confines of an abandoned radio station in the secluded apartment building of high strangeness. From the foothills of the Colorado Rockies, it's time for full disclosure of the topics they told us were off limits. Hello there, I'm Connie Willis. This is Coast to Coast AM. Tonight, genome altercations and also more strange happenings at the Bradshaw Ranch. Time now, turn off the lights. Join me for another interesting evening of conversation much needed education and the chance that we might get a little closer to the truth of what lurks amongst us and what is beyond. I'm Connie Willis and this is Coast to Coast AM. You are listening to Coast to Coast AM. Hello there, Connie Willis. Saturday night, October, fall is here. Great weather, just absolutely beautiful. And I got to take a nice little walk today and I got to see all the Halloween decorations that are up. Oh, my goodness. And and the area that I live in, people, they just compete. <laughs> they don't just compete. They have people that they call and they have them decorate their homes on the inside and the outside to compete. I mean, that's real competition. It's not even the people in the house competing against the other house next door. It's it's their designers competing against each other. Absolutely amazing, though. Oh, my goodness. I Wow. Wow. And got one of those spirit Halloween places close by. So get to go see all the good stuff, a whole bunch of new things in this year that kind of for all people across the board, whatever age you are. I love it. I love all that stuff. It's so fun. Fall is just a wonderful time. Halloween is so much fun. And of of course, a lot of you here at Coast to Coast also big Halloween fans, too. Now, if you hear a little sniffling and all that kind of stuff, a little stuffiness, yep, you know, I think uh, this has gone on, this feeling that I have had, not COVID, anything like that, but uh, it's something that's been, what, going around for a while. Some people have it for six weeks. I know someone else in my building also had it. I could tell he caught it right when I did, and it's just been lingering on and so if I've written you or didn't write you back, um, you know, that's probably the reason why. And if I wrote, you know, it's kind of weird. It could have been that little day quill or night quill stuff hitting me. It's just a strange thing. You feel like you're doing better. And then you realize, ah, I think I better lay back down. Right. It just takes your energy. I know a lot of you guys can relate to that because I keep hearing the same thing. If I mention it to anybody, oh, I had that. It took a long time to get rid of. Oh, I've got that. It's still hanging on or who stay away from me. So anyway, sorry if that's what you're hearing. It's kind of weird because I don't really hear myself either. It's kind of funky. But anyway, the show must go on and let's have a good time tonight. If you'd like to uh, go with me on live investigations of Bigfoot haunting strange lights, make sure you join my show, Blue Rock Talk, Earth's Most Interesting Conversations. We go up to the mountains, we go out to haunted places, we go to different things, and it's not 101. It's it's everything across the board and all the genres that we talk about here on Coast. It's all those things, and we take it down really deep, and then we try to compare them. We try to talk about the differences, and we just try, it's really more about experiencing it. You know, it's really more about experiencing it, and what's it feel like, what's it sound like, what's it look like. And then go from there, like, what What was that? And it's a lot of fun. So if that's who you are, if you're that person that wants to research boots on the ground and then talk about it, boots on the ground, well, there you go. You know, 
just there you go. Instead of reading your books, instead of watching the TV and and what's on there, if you really want to live it, then uh, join my show, Blue Rock Talk. That's at ConnieWillis.com. ConnieWillis.com. In fact, go ahead and just sign up at least for the emails. But hey, if you get an email, you know, don't, hey, why are you writing me? Don't send this. Well, you know, then don't sign up for the, the newsletter, right? Kind of thing. So if you sign up for the newsletter, you will get some newsletters. That's at ConnieWillis.com. All right. So a little hot tea going here. We uh, got a little hot chicken soup going. And we're going to have a good time tonight. We got uh, later on, we're going to be talking about, in the later half, we're going to be talking about the Bradshaw Ranch again. Apparently, there's been some new things happening there. And we're going to dig into it a little bit deeper with some experiences uh, or just more experiences. So I'm excited about that. But before that, we had someone on once before, and, and you guys have heard him several times back with Art as well, Charles Osman. He um, wrote me and said, hey, Connie, there's this thing going on in London this weekend. And we had uh, apparently, I guess, touched on it last time that he was here. And it's a pretty interesting topic. And it was, you know, he's got some thoughts on it. And he's not like one way or the other on it, but he's got some thoughts on it. Oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's changed his mind since he's last said that to me. But it's called Icons. And it's... Um, it just happened over the weekend, International Conference on Newborn Sequencing. Now, that's just a part of what he wants to talk about. But because of that, he wants to give us an uh, update on that, tell us what that's all about. But this goes into uh, the genomes, and it goes into some scary sci-fi films that used to be out a long time ago. And here it is maybe coming into fruition. So it's going to be pretty interesting to talk with Charles about this. Now, if you don't remember Charles' experience, 45 plus years, but he's only 42. How is that the case? Anyway, 45 years plus in the fields of electronics, material science, computing, and artificial intelligence, starting with eight years at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory at the University of California, Berkeley Los Alamos National Laboratory. He's been a senior fellow at the Institute for Global Futures, a consulting group uh, providing strategic research services to private and government clientele. I can go on here. He was co-founder of NanoSIG, an organization with the primary charter of facilitating investment and nanotechnology-related ventures, chair of the Nano Electronics and Photonics Forum, senior consultant with Silicon Valley Nano Ventures. It goes on and on and on. Char uh, Charles, welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. How are you? I'm alive and well. Hopefully you are too. And I way, am. I also, right, well, you sound good. I also had the same, uh, I don't know, attack of rogue nanites in the loose or something, whatever it is. It took about <laughs> a week to get over, but, but here we are. Oh, yours was a week? Come on. What did you take? <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, well, nice. I live out in the countryside. I'm surrounded by vineyards and orchards as far as the eye can see. So I thought it was perhaps some kind of like agricultural dust or something, but I don't know. Oh, I love it. Vineyard. Okay. Like when I went to culinary school at uh, CIA up in Napa Valley, okay. St. Helena, I lived in the Behringer vineyards. That's oh, where cool. they had yeah. us living. Yeah. Very beautiful area. That's fun. Did you go over and sneak some grapes once in a while? I mean, come Actually, on. Actually, I'm about a hundred feet away from endless miles of grapes. 
<laughs> I, mean, I love you can possibly visualize they're there. <laughs> what is it? Is it mash week? Isn't that what it's called when they mash no, the grapes in the east and all that? At all? I mean, I, I've been clean and sober for like thirty years, which is kind of ironic. Oh, congratulations! But I also have this, like huge collection of exceptionally rare, spectacular Couture wines. People give me these bottles every so often, so I've got this like closet full of these incredibly expensive bottles of wine. I give them away as gifts every so often. You know, well, don't forget people. your buddy Connie. Okay. Yeah, All right. Exactly. Don't I, I mean, I'll be happy to send you one. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> one, is that it? For, yeah, well, there we go. It's all good. So, it's funny. I always kid people. I kid people about California wines. I love California wines, uh, but I kid people about the French wines because I'm like, hey, if you want a French wine, just just go over to that to your to your attic or your basement and find the corner that you've been in the least amount of time and just lick it because <laughs> it tastes like hmm. dust. Ah, anyway, that, that particular route, but but it's funny. In a while. I was actually just in France like last week. Uh, he and I co-started a hydroponics company many, many years ago. That's a long story for a different show. I love that. Next show. Yes, I love that. Ex- but, absolutely. But anyway, so the European partner he had, it was a very lovely guy named William, a French fellow and his wife, they've actually got a European hydroponic uh, company. And we talk a lot about wines. And what's interesting is that the French wines, the vines here are actually more French than the French vines. I mean, a lot of the rootstock was taken from France, from these various valleys. And planted here. That's where the stuff came from. Right. So we actually really right. do have French wine here. I, I'm just yeah. throwing out there as an idea. No, I love that. I love that. We'll talk. We'll talk about that. So this weekend, London uh, had this. You know, when when you and I talked, they haven't had the conference yet. You have kept up with what happened. Icons, yes. International Conference on Newborn Sequencing. That's just a part of what you want to talk about. Yeah. But how did that go? Okay, what well, did you learn? The went, went really well. I mean, I've actually downloaded a bunch of their papers. And, uh, I get access to this kind of stuff. Anybody can do this, actually, if you want to. If you go to Google Search, actually has a scholars, uh, Google Scholar search engine. And if you go there, you can search for virtually any type of academic or scientific research that you can possibly think of. And it's certainly, if you go into the world of newborn sequencing, but also anything to do with genomics and preemptive genomic sequencing, all that kind of stuff, you'll get thousands of pages of things to look at. So, I mean, there's no lack of material to go through. But the interesting part, the reason I sort of brought this to your attention is it serves as a kind of a metaphorical marker. And by the way, before we really start on this, I just want to point out that the people involved in this organization and other groups that are part of this, um, these are all medical doctors and PhD-level researchers with the absolute best of intentions in mind. Their whole focus is on pediatric medicine, dealing with especially rare diseases that occur in a lot of developing areas where the cost of medicine or medical treatment is too expensive. So they use this sort of genetic approach as a way to deal with these really horrible diseases. And this, of course, plays into healthcare for everybody, including adults, uh, using this sort of emergent method. So I do not in any way want to impugn or cast a, a negative light on these people and what they're doing, because their intents really are for the very best. However, dot, 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 as in the case of any other technology, could the same ingredients or components of this infrastructure be used for something not really intended, but the consequences could somehow turn out to be rather less than what you would hope for? And the answer is, of course, yes. And that's kind of what we're going to look at for this moment. Okay. Okay. All right. So okay. you're going to give kind of all sides of it, but also more. In fact, one of the things you said is this is interesting, Connie, because have you did you see this? This movie, and did you see this movie? Uh, let's see. The first film was Gattaca? Gattaca, yeah. It's a very famous film. It had uh, came out in, like, what, 86? 
They had Uma Thurman, which I thought was her best picture ever. I mean, quite beautiful. But she also played the part of this woman who's sort of enmeshed in this kind of DNA caste system. And then a more recent version was something called Code 46, which I thought was actually a fairly realistic snapshot of what that life would look like or could look like. In this case, it's a love story, actually. Um, there were people who were rated by their different types of DNA classification, very much like the social scoring system you have in China. Only this is the genetic version thereof. And before I get too far into that, I would suggest to you that we actually are probably looking at some kind of a DNA-based caste system, and the most likely place for that to occur would probably start in China. But anyways, uh, just to back away from that for a moment, in this story, this guy is an agent, and his job is to look for people who have illegally hacked their DNA identity. And he discovers this woman who's been sort of employed at this fancy company, and she has all these you know, glowing sounding recommendations, but her DNA is wrong. So he chases her down, but they end up falling in love. You know, that happens. And so the whole movie is kind of wrapped around their adventure of trying to get by or somehow circumnavigate the authorities, which are going to be coming after her and him eventually. And I won't tell you, of course, how it turns out in the end. I don't want to offer a spoiler, but it's a very interesting film. I'm sure you can probably find it on, I don't know, Netflix or somewhere. But, I mean, if you want to get a glimpse of Hollywood's attempt to sort of give a pretty realistic snapshot of this world, that's a good start place. There's other films that are sort of like this, but they're much more... CGI explosions, chase scenes, you know, sort of silly stuff. This is much more grounded. It's much more uh, sort of um, mental or, or sort of more of a psychology film than anything else. But for those who are interested, this might be a good place to start. The other one was uh, Code 46. Well, Code 46 is the one I just was just talking about. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought, oh, wait a minute. Gattaca. Which one's the love one, Gattaca or Code 46? Code 46. Well, they're both love ones in a way. But, but Code 46 is the love story. That came out in... 99 or 98, I have to remember that here. But uh, Gattaca was the first film of its kind. That came out in 86. And that really was the sort of pioneer of the concept. It's a little bit unrealistic. It's kind of dated. You can kind of tell by the scenario and how it's um, how those different scenes are articulated. But nonetheless, mm. it gives a pretty good glimpse of what it's like to live in a society where your gradation, your acceptance, as it were, is based on your DNA content. And in this case... Um, the antagonist wants to become an astronaut, but the astronauts are very rare. They're very specialized. And so unless you've got the exact right DNA, you cannot qualify to become an astronaut. So he goes through all this kind of careful lunacy to sort of hack his way into the astronaut program. He eventually makes it, but through a rather mm, circuitous route. And Uma Thurman plays his love interest in that. But I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay. It was interesting <laughs> when I was pulling up the Gattaca, uh, Roger Ebert had, this was back in 97, he yeah. had given it a thumbs up and was just raving about it. He just yeah, absolutely well, loved it. Yeah. So I I, I, I went if I was teaching a course on the potential effects of advanced genomics affecting socioeconomic evolution in the near future, I would assign both these movies as part of the homework assignment. Well, you gave it to me for it, and and oh, there yeah. there you go. <laughs> so genomic, so the selection. Okay, you say that this is the holy grail to some, a potential nightmare for others. Well, let's just say that it's a start point. So I use a term called selective genomics, and what that means is, is it now? Is the okay? I should write back a couple of words. Let's start in the beginning. Da da da. So in the beginning, going back to the year two thousand, actually, and even before that, but right around the turn of the century. There was the Human Genome Project. In fact, it was completed in 2003. 
But at that time, he had two major contenders. He had Craig Venter, who was working with private venture funds, launched a company called Solera. And his statement was he was going to complete the genome within three years for a cost of about half a billion dollars. Okay, fine. Sounds good. Francis Collin, who was the director of NIH, he had a whole different approach. He was talking tens of billions of dollars over a decade or more, and his whole objective was to go with a funding platform so he could dish out funds to all the major universities, people could apply for grants, you know, a very traditional sort of government bureaucracy approach to the concept. And Craig said, hey, you're full of banana skins. I mean, that's, that's just not the right way to go with this. The outcome of the Human Genome Project is far too important and has far too much of an economic profile to it to let it be buried in this kind of archaic academic system approach. And for obvious reasons, Francis Collins didn't like that very much, so they had kind of a feud. And that's actually going to be a whole show by itself, what I won't go into. But anyway, so the point is, Craig Venter did actually achieve that. In fact, he was under schedule and under a budget, which is kind of cool. So by 2003, the entire genome had been decoded. Now, the result of that was kind of interesting. There were a lot of investors who clearly saw what this could come out to be, of which genomic medicine was sort of the top of the list. However, and we kind of branch on to several different tangents here, but the basic idea is this, that if you have a way to define what the different base pairs do in the genome, and, you know, you can take an entire uh, chromosome and sort of unravel it and take apart these different genetic sections and say, okay, this section with these base pairs do this. Now, when the first genome was published, about 95% of it was seen as so-called junk DNA. That being they could identify proteomically what the different base pairs were, but there was no real way to correlate them with actual physiological attributes. However, that has changed. And one of the things that has made that change so prolific is computing. In other words, if you wrote back to, look, I was in the Bay Area at the time, the East Bay of Oakland, certain parts of Oakland, Everyville, et cetera, that was kind of like ground zero for a lot of these big biotech companies in this genome business. And the primary um, property, intellectual property, was not in chemistry. It was in proprietary computing algorithms. Whoever had the smarter algorithms and the more powerful supercomputers could get further ahead in determining which protein pairs did what by simulating and by having, having a way to model, if you will, complex physiological processes and then correlating that with measurable protein pairs in their samples. And this is exactly what's happened. This is why, by the way, I've been towards quantum computing as being the next big sort of catalyst of this process, because as that becomes available in the near future, a handful of years from now, that will radically, and I do mean radically change, the whole profile of what it costs to do a genome and, of course, how to correlate different genomic content with different features. But okay, so let's back up a square. The concept for the moment is, now this has become a rote commercial process. I mean, you go to 43 and me or any number of other companies, and you can, for a price, $200, get your genome decoded. Well, in the real world, out there in the sort of industrial world, the cost per genome is approaching $100. That's kind of like the holy grail. Now, I will submit to you that at some point it's probably going to be around $10 or something in between $100 and $10. The reason that's relevant is because at that threshold, you now approach an arena where mass decoding could not only become possible, but very likely probable as a policy directive. And why would this be so? Well, sort of like digital currency in a way, 
it's a way to have everyone who can be prognosticists voluntarily or perhaps even involuntarily to be part of this massive genetic database by which you can then trace and track their lifestyle, their health uh, portfolio, the cost of their health care, preliminary determination of their children, where their children's DNA signature might be. You know, there's a whole variety of things that can be branched off from this. Will this translate into access to education, access to creditworthiness, access to job status? You know, a whole variety of different things. Very much, like I said, like the social scoring process. Well, this is the genetic version thereof. Is there he a has. So we're talking with Charles Ostman. Charles, hang in there. He's authored and given numerous presentations, technical, general interest publications, featured in interviews on TV, and of course, Coast to Coast, and also um, um, Beyond Belief with George Norrie. So stay with us. We're talking with Charles Ostman. You can find him at historianofthefutureX.com. Stay with us. You're listening to Coast to Coast AM. I'm Connie Willis. You're listening to Coast to Coast AM. Hello there, Connie Willis with you. We are basically talking about DNA as an ID system. Our guest is Charles Ostman. DNA as an ID system. Now, I want to definitely get back, Charles, to where where we had to uh, stop you there just to take a break. But, you know, this is some pretty interesting stuff here. I mean, it was in the sci-fi movies a long time ago. And here it is now coming to reality. They're looking at it in all the good ways, but there's pros and cons to everything. You know, everybody's always going to look at uh, what else it could do. But this is like, uh, just before you get back into your other things, is it is it where we, the people, make the changes as uh, a baby's an embryo? Or do we make the changes later? Or are we making the changes uh, what 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 is all that part? What's yeah, that no, mean? I totally, I totally see where you're going. So China just published uh, about three months ago, but they claim to have uh, done the first ever fully genetic modification in a human embryo. That was sort of their target, and the motivation here, of course, was to. And it, there's a lot of different sorts of diseases, whether it's obesity, diabetes, heart disease. A lot of different psychological factors, by the way. There's a whole subsection of molecular psychiatry. I actually subscribe to the journal Molecular Psychiatry. You'd be amazed how many behavioral mechanisms are driven directly by different types of neurochemistry, that sort of thing. But in any case, all these factors have genetic markers that can be associated with them. And that's why I was making the reference earlier to junk DNA, because when the Human Genome Project first started out, the ability to resolve down to a certain precision point, which base pairs meant what, was very uh, sort of approximate, but it has increased radically in terms of its uh, resolution and what they can now associate with what factor. And that's increasing dramatically as we speak. So is there an interest in commoditizing this sort of preemptive health management, I guess for better choice of words? And as I'm sure you can imagine, if the customer in question could walk in and say, well, look, um, I want my daughter Susie or my son David, whatever, to have the best intellect possible maybe to become a super athlete, uh, have certain height and weight characteristics, you know, whatever. I mean, dream it up. Uh, as soon as the genetic markers become defined, could this be implanted into the embryo? And the answer would be, theoretically, yes. Now, it's very delicate work. It's very time-consuming, and only a few places in the world really are equipped for it now. But I would suggest to you this is going to change. 
and especially if there's more of a kind of a quasi-military interest in this, which I'm sure you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, I should point out that both the U.S. and China, and also Russia to a certain point, although they, I think it's stopped now, actually had something called the Super Soldier Project. That's exactly what it was. It was a way to predetermine which attributes would be the most desirable in certain types of soldiers or other military personnel, and was it possible to, A, screen for these factors in, pre, in newborns, and or could these factors be injected into newborns as they're being born? And that was sort of where things have left off. Now, a lot of this, <clears throat> excuse me, gosh, so sorry. A lot of this is being published, but a lot of it's also not being published. In other words, this is very coveted information. And whoever can commoditize this and essentially offer it as a service or as a sort of an on-demand kind of resource, they can name the price. I mean, they'll have people at their door wind up around the block, you know, in perpetuity. This is a huge holy grail. Um, you know, this kind of reminds me of I'm just sorry to wander off into a tangent. <laughs> Forgive me. <but> I, <laughs> it's all good. I'm listening. You got okay. my attention. So, so I, I, you know, by the way, before I forget, when you were mentioning Halloween, Halloween is the one day of the year, the only day of the year, that I can just be me. I don't need, you know, some kind of a costume. I can just sort <laughs> of wander around. The scientist. Weird exactly. <laughs> The rest of the year, well, that's more questionable. But, but anyway, so getting back to the real world, sorry. So when I was involved with nanotech, going from the late 80s and through the 90s, early 2000s, um, you know, Michael uh, Crichton came out with this book called Prey, which talked about, you know, these random rogue nanites on the loose that would destroy things and eat things up. And there was a fear about gray goo. And, you know, it was, it was a pretty um, pretty dark, you know, dystopian sort of future that some were projecting through um nanotechnology. And I remember when I was going up to Lawrence, even after I stopped working at Lawrence Lab, I still went there for a variety of reasons. And I remember going to the lab, and there would be protesters, you know, standing outside, and we'd have to go through a, a locked gate, and there were guards, there was like, you know, sort of gushing us into the lab, and that sort of thing. And I talked to some of these folks, and they really, really believed that anything to do with the word nanotech automatically translated to this sort of dark, you know, horrific sort of Crichton-esque kind of world. Now, what's interesting is that my, uh, my friend, um, Bill Joy, who was the co-founder of Sun Microsystems, very, very smart guy, very successful. Uh, Sun Microsystems, by the way, was sort of the uh, preemptive distributed computing platform at the time. You know, he came up with the, but the no, sorry, moniker of the network is the computer, and he sort of invented the process of distributed computing for large-scale networks. So, I mean, very smart guy. But he published a paper that actually came out in Wired Magazine. It was a long article where he talked about the future of nanotech being the unraveling of nature, that this would be the demise of the human species, that this would be like an extinction of it. I mean, pretty dire stuff. Now, a couple of years later, he retracted this and said, look, I'm sorry, I apologize. I got sort of carried away in the emotion of the moment. I don't really have a background in material science, so I didn't really understand what I was diving into. And now that I have a closer look at this, okay, I want to revise my, my thoughts. However, however... The emotional, sort of irrational emotional uh, sort of synopsis of this idea had already taken hold and took a number of years for people, the average population, to kind of get a more accurate sense of what this was. I kind of fear the same thing is going to happen here. In other words, could preemptive genetic health management be a wonderful thing for curing a lot of diseases, for helping people become better people, as it were? Yes, of course. But... When politics and science mixes together, it's usually a really bad outcome. And yes. I don't want to talk about political stuff on today's show. I really don't. 
but I'm just trying to But you're right. Well, I just want to suggest that as a function of policy directorates, this is going to be very complex. Uh, the other thing, the reason I, by the way, when you look at the seven slides I sent up, uh, I thank you for um, Sean and the other folks at Coast to Coast who put up my graphics. One of those graphics is about the, what's called the NIBIQ protocol. NIBIQ is the nano info bio quantum tech convergence of sorts. It was a, a comrade of these actually, an annual event. I participated in two of them. And the purpose of these events back in the early 2000s was not just the science, but more importantly, the procedural protocols, the policy directorates that would surround the management of nanotech. And the reason this was so important was because, unlike most scientific ventures previous to that, which are usually vertical-oriented, separate items of science, this is where the extreme opposite was the case. He had this very horizontal integration of all these different scientific disciplines all sort of merging together, the outcome of which was, would be expressed in some form of nanotechnology. Well, the world of genetics is kind of like that as well. You have this very broad range of different scientific disciplines, whether it's materials, computing, sensing systems, all kinds of uh, sort of biomedical machinery. It's a whole range of things which all get mixed together to make this possible. And yet to regulate some aspect of how it's going to be deployed in the future requires a very detailed understanding of how these things all fit together. Otherwise, there's no possible way of regulating anything. And this is the sort of thing that the general public will probably have some difficulty with. You know, they'll hear the words mutation or something or genetic whatever and immediately panic and think, oh, my God, it's going to be Dr. Moreau's Island or something. You know, so, I, mean, I do understand how this will be a hard sell. And yet the public is correct in having some skepticism in how this could be deployed. So what usually happens is a fair amount of the stuff goes underground. There is the stuff that's put up for the public dissemination. There's other stuff which never gets published or goes off shore somewhere. Kind of like, again, not to wander off on this topic too much, but it's partly why COVID was, if you will, invented in China and Wuhan. Because when it was being done here, they realized it would be far too many regulatory steps to go through, way too expensive, and just far too much sort of political interference to do the gain-of-function research that they wanted to do. So they went for a much better option, which was to go to this virology lab in Wuhan. Now, was Anthony Fauci really guilty of these horrible things everybody's thinking? Not exactly. But I can understand the motivation that drove that. So something like that would probably very likely be the case in this next rung on the evolutionary ladder, as it were, for this kind of DNA ID system. And like I said earlier, a most likely place for this to be tried, implemented as a sort of a beta site, would be in China. Okay, so let's go back to a little bit of layman's terms here, because, man, I'm still processing everything you're saying. It's absolutely fascinating. It's amazing. It's like, holy cow. Now, uh, a couple things to say. Ethics, of course, is always going to be a big deal. Even I think we even chatted about it at one point, maybe a little bit about the ethics of AI. I mean, they're always going to fight about that. Um, I mean, that's well, where they're at now. Like, I'm sorry to interrupt. By the way, AI plays a major part in this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Out. Yeah. So you got to deal with the ethics of all this, this, and this. Is this okay to do? Is this okay to do? I know that's totally what we're talking about tonight too with the DNA. Is this okay to do? Is this not okay? Or uh, is it okay? There's going to be a fight for that forever. Absolutely. But but what about okay let me ask this all right cuz so what we're saying is all right um it's almost like 
forget six million dollar man and we can rebuild them. It's more of here we can build them, right? right? And so, can you? So at that point, who do you select to be this great athlete? Who do you select to be this in, incredible scientist? And Okay, I mean, that's one way to look at it, right? Just one way to look at this, because I know that's very primitive. What I'm saying is very simple, what I'm saying. Actually, it's a very very straightforward way of looking at it. So I use the term DNA test system, just like in India, more than anywhere else in the world, actually. And again, I I love Indian people. I'm not trying to castigate their culture. I'm just saying it's it's a well-known feature of their culture that it's something called a caste system, in which different layers of social access are based on your family lineage, you know, the sort of generational definition of where you are in the social strata, that sort of thing. So would DNA play a role in that? Yes, it would. Would access be granted to those who are well-connected? Of course. Would it be connected Always. to those of wealth? <laughs> that kind of thing. Always. Uh, check. No, just the way it is. So, I mean, look. I, the producer's often... girlfriend, check. <laughs> well, you know, why not? So, well, you know, I can see designer girlfriends. Who knows? Anyway, but but the, <laughs> I'm in trouble now. But, but but let me but let me but let me just really quickly, as you integrate what you're what you're saying here, I want you to integrate this. Is okay. You can put in this person's going to be incredible at sports. This one's going to be incredible at math. This one's going to do well for us here. My my bigger question is, are they able to add? passion because it seems as though it's the passion in us and even in the movies it's the passion in us that says i want to be an astronaut but they didn't put that in my my dna right you, you know so well, i, w- I so want to integrate that a, with your answers yeah, i want to offer a really strange answer but hey it's coast to coast what the hell so <laughs> so the answer could be yes and that's why i referred to the journal of molecular psychiatry earlier because that's exactly what that's about are there very definable neurochemistry and other physiological mechanisms that translate directly into behavior types? Yes. Can this be amplified or suppressed in different areas to create different personality types? Yes. In fact, this has become a kind of a big deal, also very controversial. Uh, could this be further yes. delineated? can't even talk. Could this be further delineated along racial or ethnic lines? The answer is yes. And of course, you can imagine this gets to be really dicey stuff. There was actually a project through NIH called the crime gene. I'm not kidding. They were looking for a way to find genetic markers that would show a proclivity towards violence, abusive behavior, other criminal kinds of mindsets. Could this be preemptively determined and therefore abated before the child became a, a grown person? Unfortunately, as you can imagine, especially because it did in fact have some notification that it might be racially oriented, this was an extremely delicate topic. So people wanted to back away as fast as possible. So, in fact, that research still continues, but it's named in different ways, and it's been sort of broken up into different areas of research. But nonetheless, the event stream for making that come to pass very much does exist. And even, like I said, even if it doesn't, isn't, isn't allowed here, it'll certainly be allowed elsewhere in the world. But sort of getting back to the earlier thing, how would this actually be deployed? What would be the pathway? Well, one theoretical model that I see being quite plausible It'll be a financial uh, inducement. In other words, you're a young mom starting out. You're having your first child. You know, money's tight. People are really suffering now with inflation and everything. So you're offered a drastic reduction in cost. You know, I don't know what it costs to have a baby these days, but it ranges from a few thousands to many tens of thousands of dollars. It's very expensive. Healthcare in general is very expensive. 
Now, if you were offered this sort of, hey, well, you know, carte blanche will reduce your cost by 90%, we'll give you tax incentives, just whatever, if you voluntarily, dot, 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 join up to have your baby's DNA integrated into this ubiquitous data grid, this DNA data grid. And for a lot of people, will say, well, what the hell, why not? Especially if they're told, and this is truthful, that this will be a pathway for making a healthier child, that they can screen for different kinds of genetic diseases, that you'll be radically improving the chances of your child having a better life, you know, et cetera. Sure, I can see a lot of people signing for this. Over time, as the volume of people began to increase, and the, this became more of a norm as opposed to an exotic, you know, unusual thing, that would just the momentum of having that on such a large scale would sort of push this into the more involuntary area. Kind of like the way that social security numbers, when they were first produced, it was told that this would never be used for an ID. You know, laugh, laugh. Well, yeah. Here we are later. Fine. So would the DNA process be sort of like this? Probably. And over time, if it became a requirement, I mean, look, you have a lot of people who, to put it bluntly, really clumsy with their own health management. They drink, they smoke, overeat, and then by the time they're 30 or 40, they're already having these horrible diseases, and then they come into the health care system and say, okay, fix me, make me better without taking any responsibility for the things that caused that health in the first place. Well, you know, I'm sorry to say, but the system is kind of failing. We're hitting a saturation threshold. We're simply not sustainable. People are going to have to be made more responsible for managing their own activities, which makes mm-hmm. for a better healthcare profile. So would genetic mapping be part of this? Theoretically, from a technical sense, absolutely. Would it be voluntarily accepted? Well, maybe, but... If it were brought into fruition, by this kind of financial uh, inducement, as it were, yes, I could see that as being a very viable pathway. Oh, man, good stuff here. We're talking with Charles Osman. We're talking about the DNA as an ID system. Uh, he's got so many other things to say, and I know that you want to talk to him yourself. So we'll take some phone calls coming up for you next hour. and. And we'll learn more from him. He's got much to say, and I'm just, like I said earlier, I'm processing this. Interesting stuff. Stay with us. Connie Willis here on Coast to Coast AM.